two or three years, sometimes you get lucky. I don't actually believe that should ever be a goal. I just fundamentally don't. And I think that's one of one of one of the things we had we don't talk about a lot anymore, but we used to talk about a lot with why we wrote this book, is that one of our sort of personal goals, the chips on all of our shoulders is we want to empower our the people who use the levers process to control their own destiny. And that might mean never raising venture capital or it might be pushing it off down the Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Amos Schwartzfarb and Trevor Baim, co-authors of Levers with a couple other friends, Cody Sims and Troy Hankoff. Did I say his name right? Hankoff. Hankoff, dang it. You can get your own copy at leversbook.com and and then you can get their services at retrocause.com. If you missed part one, please go back and listen about the many companies they've built uh, and the many companies they've invested in and what they do with Techstars out in Austin. I think kind of jumping into it, I want to ask you, Trevor, a question I asked Amos in the last episode. Thinking about the business of yours that hit the highest revenue numbers or the highest exit number, which which one would that be? Yeah, we'll, we'll use, we're going to use some of the ones that I've invested in and we'll use, hmm, you know, a fun one to, actually, I don't know if this is, this is the highest, but it, it maybe is an interesting demonstration would be a, a company that's gone through a, a pivot that both Amos and I have worked with called called skip town or skipper and this is a uh, a company that started off as a dog walking service and then has transitioned into a essentially a pet an experience for pets and their and their caretakers that's a combination of pet like a sort of dog park pet park beer you know bar wine food and and different pet care services okay can you pick one of the pick one of the elements from the from the lever's book and, and tell us how it applies yeah. Okay. So I'll start with the the who, or sorry, the what here, the who and the what, and I think that translates into how they kind of came into some of the what the pivot pivoting that they've done. What's fun about this business too is we've gotten to see and work with them through a a couple of different sort of iterations and and cycles through this framework. And when they first started off as a dog walking service, they were in a very interesting market, right? Ones with one with very big competitors that had raised a ton of money, a lot more than they had, but they had established some success in their markets. So they were based in the North Carolina and seen a, a good amount of success there. And they were, they were seeing whether or not they could replicate that in different cities. And, uh, and the thing that they recognized pretty early on and, and, and the work that we did with them is we figured out, okay, what we're really selling here is trust, right? Where most dog walking services are 1099 contractors that you don't really understand or know, and, and you're effectively trusting your your sort of you know family member with them. We're instead selling sort of a deep trusted relationship, not with 1099 uh, workers, but employees right, who we work with, who, who you will literally be willing to give your key to, right? Who can walk inside of your home 
and and take the dog out or, or, or take the animal out and, and walk them around. And so I think that helps. I, I say that because I think it helped feed into the direction where they, they took the business ultimately, which was a combination of two things. One was the was the, the start of the pandemic, which, which did, as you can imagine, that a lot of people needed someone to walk their dog, right, if they were home 100% of the time. So that market generally just like had huge shifts, right, at the start of the pandemic. And and then secondarily, they began to see and think about um, where the opportunities lie in the business. And they had sort of parallel to some of this work on the on-demand dog walking service, started to create little like doggy daycare, essentially spaces, often in partnership with like an apartment complex, for instance, in an area. So they'd say, we'll do the dog walking services for this apartment complex, but we'll also put a, a daycare facility, sort of a doggy daycare grooming services, like into the into the facility itself and they started to see the some real significant opportunity there in terms of the the traction that started to pick up so you have two things that happen right they've got some of these daycare facilities that are really starting to pick up and have sort of interesting legs to them and then the pandemic sort of go go crazy and that births this sort of new opportunity to begin to think about which is what if we could create a kind of single you know one-stop shop experience that could be like the most basically disney world right for pet pet owners and, and, and so then they took that same idea of like, okay, if we can get people to sort of try to trust us, then they're going to want to, we're, we're going to be able to do all kinds of other things with them, right? It's not just like walk their dog, but they're also going to be able to like spend their whole day with us having all kinds of different services. And so they went back through this whole process again, like sort of as they thought through this new this new opportunity. And, and, and this is where the sort of last part of the framework really came into, into play because they had a lot of if you think about something like this, it's a big bet, right? They're shifting their model dramatically. You've got to build a facility. There's like a lot of CapEx involved, right? So there was a lot of kind of one-time uh, big sort of asymmetrical risks sort of associated with this. So they had to figure out how do we sort of de-risk each of those by fig by by identifying the assumptions, see which ones are most critical, and then start to test them. And so they did that. That's what they started to do. Basically work methodically through who down to like how many drinks do we think a person who shows up at the bar is going to consume at one time how many hours you know is a pet owner going to show up how often are they going to also use some part of the daycare services the grooming services and they went and they they tested and they built assumptions for each of before they launched and 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 then actually when they played out it was Amos do you remember it was something like it was still kind of in the middle of the pandemic and oh, they, had, they, launched, they had launched in July, 2020, they launched a, yeah. a, a physical facility for pet for pets and their owners in July of 2020. Yeah. And there were a ton of outdoor space to this, like there sort of, there were parts to it, you know, there were like food trucks that were outside, you know, there were components of it that, you know, allowed for a more kind of friendly pandemic friendly environment, but just destroyed their numbers. Right? There was way above what they expected because they had done that hard work of figuring out like super granularly, how does the model play out and, and are now in, in, in conversations to expand that model in multiple cities over the, over the country. Yeah, by the way, when, when, when Trevor says they destroyed their numbers, good destroy, not bad destroy. They, they crushed their numbers. Love it. Trevor, I got long-winded in our last session. I know you've got to get to your next thing. We'll let, we'll let you jump off here. And uh, thanks for joining us. <laughs> yeah, Trevor, good right. to see you, man. Okay. I'll see you later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. We'll see you soon. Amos, anything you would add to uh, to Trevor's story there? Probably a lot. But I think the, the one of the things that we've seen play out, particularly with that business, is that uh, maybe I'll say two things. The, the CEO has used this 
use the process for a number of things. The primary one is, okay, you know, are the things that we think we're going to do in this business, can we actually do them? And then as we start to do them, do they actually work? She has also used them as a way, and this is part of what we believe is one of the values of the process, is a way to align her entire team, right? So she's not going at this by herself blindly and saying, okay, go do this. She's bringing in the key members from her team at different points. The other thing that she has done is she's continually revisited it. So she's gone done the deep work, I think every six months or so, but she, but she uses, this is the language that they use inside of their business. They're constantly, you know, checking their metrics versus what they believe to be true on their revenue formula and how that lines up against the priorities. And they're using it again now as they are looking to go from one facility to multiple facilities in the next couple of years. And the confidence that we have, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm also on the board of this company that we have is that the, the investors we're talking to coming in, the confidence that they have in that the numbers that we are projecting are actually directionally probably right, uh, are pretty significant to the level of like, this is how you would think a public company would be behaving. And yet they're, you know, theoretically, uh, not in theory, I mean, reality is still a pretty early stage company. Interesting. It is funny how, again, it doesn't sound that crazy to get granular and write down every little number and make your assumptions ahead of time. Right. And yet how many of us don't do it? Yeah. I think one of the things that, that I'm sure you have experienced this in, in all of the things that you've done, it, it is, it is underestimated the Herculean effort it takes to actually do any of this stuff to stand up a business and to actually run that business and to actually grow that business. And I think if, if there's no, I think there's a lot of other value, but I think if there's no other value that, that the levers book and the levers framework provides is taking out the guesswork of what you need to go do, because you still need to roll up your sleeves and dig the ditch that's in your backyard. That's a hundred by a hundred by a hundred feet through limestone with your fingers. And so what we're trying to say is, here's a little shovel you'd use at the beach instead of using your hands, and it'll go a little bit faster. <laughs> well, I want to I want to talk about a different direction a little bit. You know, I have so many people on the show who either they're CEO of a publicly traded big giant company like Honeywell or something, or whatever they've done, you know, they paid their dues, they did something, and then later on they decide they want to write a book or write books, and then maybe do some speaking or some advising or maybe some training, something like that. I'm interested in your mind when you think about the formula of, you know, become a higher profile expert, higher visibility expert, write a book and, and have that essentially act as a funnel for, for what you guys do at RetroCause. Can you talk to me of, of how that model works in your mind? Yes, I can. What I would say is, let me start here. And I do wish Trevor was here for this. Our, when we set out to, to write, this book and it was I, I this is my second book we, we don't need to talk about the, the the first one same goal in mind our goal wasn't to drive our consulting business our goal wasn't to drive deal flow for my work at TechStars. it really was kind of to the same concept of the book we have figured out something with data that works and truly just wanted to impact as many people as possible and in fact We've self-published the second one and it's doing really, really well, but we self-published it because the traditional publishers, that's not their goal. Their goal is to move units. Like, you know, you can go get our book for 99 cents on the, the Kindle on Amazon. That's awesome. Love it. 
how do we touch as many people and give as many people as possible? So for, for us, I just want to throw this out there. Like our motivation from day one was how do we get to repeatability to a larger number of people with the things that we believe to be true? We've all, all four of us have been really, really lucky. We all love what we do for a living in our day jobs. And we felt like if we can get this out to more people and people find it valuable, let's do that. So I don't know if that answers your question or if I've totally missed the mark, but that was really our motivation here. Perfect. Well, thinking about this of, you know, those pure motivations are so often the most effective, right? Because people aren't saying, they aren't holding back saying, well, well, I don't want to overshare. If I tell them, teach them too much in the book, then they won't need to hire me. And like, you know, my experience is the opposite. Like the more helpful you are, the more help people want kind of thing, right? Yeah. There's nothing in the book. <laughs> there's nothing we'll tell you different than what you get a hundred percent of it there. <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, by bringing that more generous spirit, it actually increases the likelihood that somebody does want your help. And you can obviously impact them much more when they actually get to interact with you with it, you know, if they buy one of these 30 day programs from you guys at retro cause stuff like this. Yeah. Right. And you can kind of take it to that next level with them of implementing what you really meant versus what they actually heard when they read the book and went through their own filters. Right. Yeah. So when you think about, when you think about that relationship and you think about somebody has to want to pick up the book first, the book is not helpful if you can't get the hook out there. So they'll pick it up in the first place and, and actually read it. Right. Like buying a book is not that helpful. Reading the book is the helpful part. Yeah. As you think through that, I mean, there's the market is flooded with business books every year, every quarter, every month. What what were some of the decisions that you made of like, okay, how are we going to make how are we going to make Lever stand out in the sea of new books that will be released this year? I don't know that we had to have a great answer for for that from a marketing perspective. Just candidly, like I'm not a marketer. Trevor's not a marketer. Cody's not a marketer. Troy's not a marketer. That's not what we do. I, I, th I think that we all do come from one really common core belief, which is that and, it, and it, when, you, when you have what's best for your intended customer at mind and you build to deliver value to them and they actually receive the value that you hope or some value that's you know, tangible to them, that over time they will be willing to share that with people that they think are, will also receive that value for a lot. And their motivations may be, may be a little bit different. So I would say from a building of the, the, the artifact, the book itself perspective, we, we tried really hard to do that by, you know, we, did, we didn't take leave anything out. It's all right there. You, you never have to work with us. If you want to go do it yourself, by all means, please go do it. The value is there. And then from a marketing perspective, I would say we probably do ourselves a disservice, if anything, if I'm being honest, because none of us are great at self-promoting. We just want to, you know, we just want to help people. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because so many of the doers in life, like so many of the people who are obsessive social media folks don't actually have the experience worth sharing, you know, right? Yeah. And very often the people who are the doers don't have the years of the social media experience or other or other forms of background in order to get the workout. And yet you can't really be helpful without both. If nobody finds no matter how good the book is, if people don't find out about it, it wasn't that helpful. Right. Yeah. So to me, I mean, if you look at like the idea of a perennial seller, like the kind of books that sell more a decade later than when they first came out, I really feel like you've nailed it there of like, if this is genuinely absurdly helpful, right. And the, the people who do get through it, it helped them so much that, that they're passing it on. That's, 
you know, that's literally a, a positive viral coefficient, even if it's over years instead of over hours, right? Yeah, that is, look, I'm sorry, let me finish. No, no, finish. I apologize. What yeah. are you saying? That, that, that is all of our hopes. I mean, really, and it was, you know, it was, I, I look at, I think the, the proxy that I have used is venture deals, which, you know, Brad, I think he's been on the show. Brad Feld. You know, he, he, yeah, Brad Feld. He and Jason Mendelson have written an incredible book that has absolutely standed the test of time and will for a really, really long time. If we could, you know, if we can be, you know, a percentage of that value in 10 years from now, I mean, that is what we're hoping for. And I, and I, I believe we've written something that has that potential and, you know, hopefully we do a good enough job in getting it to enough people's hands. And so, thank you know, thank you for having us because we all have our, we, each one of the four of us has our own styles that work best. I love this. I love getting to talk one-on-one -on -one with people about it. I, I, I don't know if you could tell, but I get really like nerdy and excited <laughs> about it. Yeah. So the, <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm, I'm going to take another right turn, another direction I want to go here. You know, when I used to be, I don't know how long this goes was. Well, 2004. So that like 16 years ago, 17 years ago now. When I was on the front end of a mergers and acquisitions team at Citigroup, my job was to call CEOs and say, hey, we think we've got some private equity groups that would buy you. Do you want to sell? Right. And I'm, I'm trying to get these CEOs on the line and talk them into letting us like basically start a limited auction and take a sell side transaction fee by ratcheting the price up. We win, they win yeah. kind of thing. Right. And so often it's like, so I did mid-market. So the biggest we did is like $500 million a year. We didn't do like the big stuff in the Wall Street Journal, right? My team. But usually, you know, it could be like a guy who's like, does has a $30 million paint company, you know, right? And, you know, hasn't really thought that hard about selling because it's kind of their identity. And they kind of thought the kids might want it at some point, but now it doesn't look like it. And they're not exactly sure what to do. And they're just busy doing what they've been doing for 30 years, right? I'm interested in your opinion of, when you take the average business owner, even like semi-ambitious business owner, right? Versus the mindset in the venture-backed tech world of like, no, we're going to do this. We're going to do 30 years of work in three years, <laughs> right? As far as valuation growth. In your mind, what is different about the perspective? How are people programming themselves different so they can actually deliver on that level of progress in such compressed timeframes? Yeah, we might have some fun with this question. So I... I realize as an as a as a early stage investor, as an investor, I'm a little bit maybe in the minority in this thinking. It it actually frustrates me when founders think that they can compress ten or fifteen or twenty or thirty years into you know two or three years. Sometimes you get lucky. I don't actually believe that should ever be a goal. I just fundamentally don't, and I think that's one of one of one of the things we ha we don't talk about a lot anymore, but we used to talk about a lot with why we wrote this book. Is that one of our sort of personal goals, the chips on all of our shoulders? Is we want to empower our the people who use the levers process to control their own destiny, and that might mean never raising venture capital, or it might be pushing it off down the road so that they have more leverage. When they actually, so I'm not trying to skirt your question, but I would actually say like, well, let me your ask, goal, let if, me ask if, it a different way then. Okay. 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 So we had Alex Bean on the show. We had him when he'd raised, so he's one of the co-founders at Divi. Okay. And we had him on when he, when he'd had 30 million raised, when he had 250 million raised. And then I just went dirt biking with him. They just sold for two and a half billion. Okay. Mm -hmm. To build.com. And so I got to get him back on now to talk about it. Right. Yeah. 
And that took years to do. I don't mean that they got that done in two years. Like, but I'm yeah. saying an exit on that level for the guy who has the paint company, that's like 400 years of work. Do you know what I mean? That they did in, you know, or, or like look at Qualtrics out here or, you know, these guys, you know, 14 years later, they did what would have taken the paint company guy 1400 years kind of thing. Yeah. Right. So what I mean is, what do you think those of us who want to think more like the tech world, but maybe aren't in the tech world where we want to embrace more of that, like less limited thinking, how can the, how can the rest of us benefit from the good things that happen in, in the way that people at tech stars think? Yeah, I think, well, I, I think it's a few, a few things. I think it starts with what do you really want as a business owner, right? And it goes to your initial question, you know, a $30 million paint business that has never taken in any outside capital is a really lucrative business for that person, right? That might be what they want. If what they want sure. is a $3 billion business, it starts with like, I think it starts with recognizing I want a $3 billion business and and then going, you know, using our structure, can we get there? And if so, how, and what has to evolve in the way that we're currently thinking about it? So I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to use. No, no, I think it's, a, as, but I think as, it's a perfectly valid thing yeah. of like, yeah. I don't care how good you are at Batman. If you want Michael Jordan money for sponsorships, that's not an ideal vehicle. Like being the best badminton player in the world is not going to make you Michael Jordan money. Like, let's be honest about the vehicle you've chosen and does it match the destination you claim you want? I think that's an extremely yeah. valid question. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I think. I, I, I do think it comes a lot with a lot of self-honesty. And, and also, I mean, this, I guess, falls into the self-honesty bucket too. But like, what, what, is, what is enough? I mean, there are some people that, you know, they want to be billionaires. Like, I don't really care if I'm ever a billionaire. Maybe that's not a popular thing to say, but like there is a, you know, I don't, I, I can be really happy with a lot less than that personally. Yeah. Yeah. But again, for me, again, that goes back to destination definition, right? If the destination is more, that's a crappy life. You can be like that Josh Brolin character on Wall Street too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. If the definition is more than I've got, like that's a never ending treadmill of death. Right. That's right. Okay. Those so are- yeah, I mean, we, like we, I mean, we could take this on like a whole other no, direction. No. I mean, I, I, I'm at a, I, I've hit a phase in my life. I, I think I said it on the last episode, right? Like I'm encroaching on 50 now. I'm like, okay, what's it, what's, what, what has been important to me in the past and what's important to me in the future. And I'm sure this will change again a few more times, but what is important to me right now and for the next couple of years is quite different than it was 10 years ago. Sure. And so now I'm adjusting all of the, you know, and frankly, I use portions of the levers framework for my personal life. Like what are the things that I know are true? What do I believe to be true? And how do I, how do I make sure I'm prioritizing the things that matter to me today, which may not have been the same as before. And so I think, I think there's a, you know, whether you want to call it spiritual or self-honesty or whatever, I think there's a little bit of that, that, you know, we all have to do. And to your point, like being for some people being on the never ending treadmill, that is the thing that they maybe want forever or the thing that they want right now. I certainly was that person for sure. And I think we all evolve or, or maybe we don't all evolve is the wrong word, but you know, whatever you want in today is just be honest with yourself. Yeah. Well, listen, you get, you get to be on interviews like this with the new book and, and uh, you get to be a speaker and stuff. What's, what's a question that you don't get asked enough? Or what's a question you wish people would ask more? I don't think, I, I, while I think people are saying we should talk about mental health more, I don't think people actually talk about mental health that more. I never get asked that question. And I think it, you know, it, I think all of this, it plays into all of this. 
everything that we're trying to do with Techstars, everything that founders are trying to do by changing the world as they see it to something quite different, you know, being mentally healthy, first of all, is going to help you be more successful, but also it's just going to help help you build a better quality of life for yourself. And it could mean something very different for everybody. So I, I couldn't agree more. I'm a pretty churchy guy. So I feel like my faith helps me with that. I got from that book, Good to Great. I got really into stoicism from the James Stockdale paradox. And then like mm-hmm. later on when guys like Ryan Holiday came out, like I, I really enjoyed that stuff. I feel like it's like a good framework to help me like get honest and, but also like realize like the situation doesn't dictate the future. It's my it's my objective, it's my subjective opinions about the objective truths, right? And so those are a couple of my hacks. What are a couple of your hacks? A couple of things. I'll start with this. The, and it's, the, the, the retro cause comes from one of the hacks. Okay. The, the, so so the, the, the reason that was the name that we chose is because there's this physics principle called retro causality. Are you familiar with it? No, no. The, the, the principle is that the present doesn't predict the future. It's actually the reverse. The future predicts the present. And so if you extrapolate that out to what we're trying to do with the levers framework, and I'll tell you some other hacks that I use, it's that I have a vision of what the future is going to be, and I'm going to build to that future so that I'm predicting the present with the future. And so that is something that one of the things that I try to do, and especially when I start to get down, I'm like, okay, why am I down? Right? And I do, I get down. I actually have come out of a, like a bit of a down period just recently. I'm like, okay, why am I down? Well, I'm down because I've lost sight of what I want the future to look like, or I haven't lost sight of it, but I've lost sight of the things today that I'm using to get to the future as I see it or want to see it. So that's one thing that, that I do is I, I really try to like keep those two things in check. Where do I want to be? Where am I? Am I on the path to get there? Is that thing changing? And I haven't realized it's changing. And the other thing that I do, and I don't know if this is a hack, but my, my executive coach, I think every leader should have one, period. My executive coach, I chose someone that is specific to the type of person that I needed, which is someone who is not only executive coach, they've been to seminary, so they have a very spiritual background. She's, she's Buddhist. She also has done extensive work in psychology and psychiatry. So she t- for me, she touches everything, right? So we can have these really deep conversations about like what's going on in, in, in life and then how, and then she, for her, she's really good at keying in on, okay, what does Amos need in order for Amos to be the best version of, of himself? And then she works with me on those things. And some days they are very specific to business and my work at Techstars. And sometimes they have nothing to do with that at all, but it all is wrapped up in one. Okay. So, yeah. Um, I know we're going to have to end at some point here, but I have a million more questions, but I want to follow up on this one because it, it relates to kind of the question I was asking in, in the first episode. So, you know, call him executive coach, call him strategy advisor, what, you know, whatever you want, whatever the label is. Okay. When you think about what you're buying versus what she's selling, right? How do you think you'd define that? How do you think you'd define what you're buying from her? Yeah, I am. I, I think it has evolved a little bit. I think initially what I was buying from her was help on getting clarity on the things that, that are important. And what I, what I think it is now is quite different. What I, what I am buying from her is a, an objective person who is helping to guide me to where I want. So can I play devil's advocate for one minute on these? Please. Okay. Yeah. So somebody who, so the reason I always call myself a strategy advisor is because I don't want to get lumped in with like life coaches which can be so varied and like there's a there's a there's a lot of folks who maybe don't have as much to offer 
better good marketers. And so there's a little like people feel bait and switch, right? Mm -hmm. They pay big prices and it didn't pan out, which is true in any profession, but especially in an unregulated (laughs) new one, it's worse, right? Okay. So when somebody who has been highly skeptical of a space, some some young ambitious CEO, we're going to say late 30s to late 40s, just because my example, okay, right? When they hear that and they say, but like, what do I need them to get clarity? Like the clarity is my clarity for me. Or like you said, an independent person to help me, to help guide me to what I want, right? And they say, well, how are they going to guide you to it? You're the one who knows what you want. I think I know the answer to these questions, but what would your responses be? Yeah, I think there's probably a couple of different ways that I would think about it. But so I'll start with this. I guess, you know, if you're you're the CEO, head of of a company, are you doing everything yourself? Or are you bringing in people, you know, to ideally people that are better than you in their areas of expertise, but even if that's not your style and your strategy, are you still bringing in people to actually roll up their sleeves and do the work? Or are you doing every piece of work, right? And I think that this is another version of that, which is, yes, you only, you know what you want, but it, it is, it is impossible to be completely objective with you. So I think that is, you know, first and foremost, and I lost the second thing that I was going to say. Totally spaced. I think that's enough though, because why are we all so good at helping our fellow CEO friend with their situation? And yet we drive ourselves nuts for three weeks going in monkey mind in our car back and forth. Can't decide. We bug our spouse to death, arguing both halves of it and can't come to a conclusion. But our friend tells us their situation and we can snap to a decision of like, uh, you know, but it's so nice to have somebody who can gently help you to that objectivity right? Yeah. Instead yeah. of say, hey, Jess, you dummy, why can't you see this? Yeah, no, it's totally true. And I, where I thought you were going with the question is like, oh, I've tried it before and it hasn't worked, right? But I think I, I, I went through, I think, seven or eight coaches before I found the one. I, I, I happen to believe in the model, so which is why I push it. And I push it for all my, my the portfolio CEOs too. But it, the first person may very likely not be the right person. And I think that there's a personality match and there's a whole bunch of, you know, timing matches, a whole bunch of other yeah. things that are at play. I love it. Listen, everybody needs to go to leversbook.com, get their own copy. What do you want to leave us with today? (sighs) Regardless of where you are in your journey of building a business, it's super, super hard. First and foremost, thank you for being out there trying to change the world. And it's awesome. And I know that sounds a little hokey, but it's true. So thank you for that. And if you're looking for, you know, a little bit of extra help and discipline around what you're trying to do, you know, maybe we can help at Leversbook. Love it. Okay. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for coming on, Amos. Yeah, man. This is super fun. Thank you for having us. Bye everyone.